Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is a, a joy and a privilege to be together. We might be in a hotel, but this is God's house where his people gather. And it is something that I think all of us have become even more grateful for during the last several months, grateful for the privilege it is to be together and to worship Christ. And I hope that your heart and not just your voice is singing these truths with us this morning. Well, I want to welcome you to Redemption Hill Church. I know we have several visitors today. We're glad you've come to join here with us. I want to uh, invite us all to turn now in the Bible to Exodus chapter 2. We'll begin our series through this book. I know we have a few people in our church who are artists. In fact, I've been to uh, one home and actually seen the art studio and seen some of the works of art uh, in this church member's home. And one of the things I saw there was a caricature. I don't know if any of you guys have seen those before. Um, An artist's rendition of a person that sort of overemphasizes unique characteristics. So a caricature of me would have a lot of gray on the chin and and a crooked nose. That would be the caricature of me. But artists tend to exaggerate certain features, notable features. And a caricature is very different than a realistic uh, portrait, and very different, obviously, than a photograph. And when a caricature is done, maybe at a theme park, or perhaps it's a political sketch in the newspaper, that's all fine and good. But sadly, the world today is filled with caricatures of God. Not literal cartoons but theological portrayals of God that exaggerate certain attributes and overstate them and then diminish other parts of God's character, distorting the truth of who God actually is. And nowhere is this caricature more apparent than when we try to deal with questions about the goodness of God and the suffering of people. Some people think of God as sovereign and in control, but they view him as cold and indifferent, cruel, even distant and detached. They rightly acknowledge that God does everything for the sake of his name and for the sake of magnifying his glory, which is true, but they seem to miss the compassion and the mercy of God's heart. There are others who fall into the ditch on the other side of the road. They will loudly herald the love and the mercy and the compassion of God, but shy away from or even outright reject the sovereignty of God, his pursuit of his glory, his justice, his holiness. Friends, as those who, who trust that, true, that, truth, that, that the truth presented in Scripture is infallible and inerrant and inspired, that every word of this book is breathed out by God, We want to worship God for as he actually is. We don't want to embrace a cartoonish God of our own creation. We want to worship the real God. And the good news is we've not been left to ourselves to figure out and imagine what God must be like. Our view of God is not the product of our moral imagination. It's not the product of just human reason or even some sort of philosophical postulation. No, we believe that God is who he has revealed himself to be. God shows us. He tells us who he is and what he is like in his word. And so it's to God's word that we turn to behold God. I'm going to read our text for this morning, Exodus chapter 2, 
verses 23 through 25. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we do so with gratitude that you have revealed yourself to us, but also with fear and trembling. The fact that your scriptures are inspired and inerrant and true gives us a great deal of responsibility. The one who explains your truth must get it right. And those who hear your truth are bound to respond in faith and obedience and worship. So God, I pray that your spirit would be with me today, that I would paint an accurate picture of who you are through the explanation of your word. And I pray that all of us would have hearts open to receive all that you would have for us in your word. Lord, feed our souls today. Nourish our faith. Conform us to the image of Christ. And do it all for the sake of your name and your glory. Amen. Our text today is short, um, and the point is simple. This text is very simply an insight for us into the character of God. There's four descriptions here of God's response to the suffering of his people, and each one reveals for us God's heart. And my aim this morning is simply to take in, sort of observe, and just focus on these descriptions and reflect on what it is that they reveal to us about God. The text begins with this phrase, during those many days. Just to back up and sort of give us the context here, remember that God has been preparing Moses, preparing Moses to lead the people out of slavery. And as we saw last week, Moses' failure in Egypt meant that he had to flee. He, was, he ended up in the land of Midian and was welcomed in by Jethro and his family. In God's wisdom, God had decided that Moses would be more useful to be his instrument of deliverance if he was a nobody, if he was an outcast, if he was a nomadic shepherd, an outsider, rather than someone who was walking out of the palace doors. So God is preparing Moses, teaching him, shaping him, forming him. And scripture elsewhere tells us that Moses was 40 years old when he left Egypt and went to Midian. And it tells us that he was there for 40 more years. Moses would be 80 years old when God would appear to him and speak and commission him to go back to Egypt. So what's going on in the meanwhile? What's going on during those 40 years while Moses is in Midian? Well, now the, the camera, as it were, pans back from Midian to Egypt. And something significant has happened. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. He died. You know, we have a presidential election every four years, and that's typically a big event for our society. There's a lot of transition. It's a pretty big deal, but the death of a pharaoh happened far less often, and that sort of transition would have been much more significant than when we have an inauguration and swear in a new president. It signaled a regime change, and this has implications, first of all, for Moses. The good news is Moses' life is no longer in danger. The warrant for him, in a sense, had expired. Nobody's looking for him anymore. Chapter 4, verse 19, it says, All those who were seeking to put him to death have died. 
So this means that when Moses returns, he, he will be able to stand before the Pharaoh as a prophet of God and not as just a fugitive from the crown. But what does the death of this king mean for the people still in Egypt? Think about that. If you put yourself in their shoes, you can imagine that they likely hoped that when this king who had oppressed them, who had enslaved them, who had, had piled on the cruelty, maybe when he dies, things will get better. Maybe when the new king comes, there will be a new deal struck with the Hebrews. Maybe this transition would bring some sort of relief for them. But that's not what happened. It says the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. There's no relief for them. These people continue to suffer under the oppressive cruelty of their masters. It's a new king, but the same story for them. Proverbs 13, 12 says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. These people longed for relief. They hoped for deliverance. They wanted things to get better. But even with this king dying and a new king coming onto the scene, nothing had changed. Time had not helped their situation. The attempts of Moses, like we saw last week, had not helped their situation. So they turned to the only one who could do something about it. The people pray. They pray. And this is not just the prayer of duty. This is not the prayer of religious ritual. This is not just sort of casually covering your spiritual bases. Their prayer is one of pure desperation. They groan. They sigh. This is pain vocalized. This is the guttural groaning of the afflicted. We don't see it as clearly in our English Bibles, but the Hebrew text actually has four different words that describe this exhale of grief and their cry for help. In the ESV, which I'm using this morning, it translates these four words as two words, two variations of words. It uses the word cry and the word groan. But the Hebrew text seems to belabor the point here, using a variety of words to describe just how desperate these people are. This response on their knees, pouring out their heart before God, is comprehensive. With one voice and with one heart, the nation is in anguished prayer to their God, asking him to help. There's a question that arises in the human heart when we have a prolonged experience of suffering, adversity. We want to know, does God really hear does God see exactly what's going on in my life? Does God care about how this is hurting us? Has God forgotten us? These are the questions we all tend to ask when life becomes painful, when adversity and suffering persists. And to this question, the scriptures give us a resounding answer. Does God hear does God remember his promise to us? Does God see? Does God care? Does he understand? The answer is yes. If you remember, there's these four words that describe their groaning, their sighing, their cries, their pleas for help. And in answer to this, there are four descriptions of God's response to them. That God indeed does hear. He remembers. He sees. And he knows. His response to them is complete and sufficient 
and appropriate and perfect, as is everything that our God does. I want to look at these three descriptions of God's response. First of all, God hears. God hears the prayers of his people. It says in verse 24, and God heard their groaning. Perhaps you've experienced that, where you pray, you cry out, and you wonder, does God hear? Scripture says, yes, he does. David testifies in the Psalms, in Psalm 18, 6, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Psalm 102, verse 17 says that he regards the prayer of the destitute. He does not despise their prayer. Psalm 34, 17 says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God hears. He hears. And it's not just that he hears them in the sense that he's aware, that he goes, okay, yes, there's words, and I understand what those words mean, and I, 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 I heard that. No, God hears their prayers in the sense that he receives them. He receives them. He listens. The infinite, sovereign, holy, almighty God listens to the prayers of finite, small people like you and me. The one who rules galaxies and nations pays attention to your prayers. He hears. Do not think for a moment that to believe in the sovereignty of God, that he is the one who raises up nations and establishes kings and crushes armies, do not think that this means to abandon prayer. Do not think for a moment that because God is sovereign, that he has no interest in your prayers that he will not listen to your prayers, that it is a waste of your time to pray and ask him to act and to help. See, in God's infinite wisdom, he has ordained all things, not only just the outcome of all things, but also the means by which those things are accomplished. God uses prayer to accomplish his sovereign purpose and plan. These people prayed for help, and God He heard. When Moses returns to Egypt, when the plagues begin to fall on their oppressors, when the Red Sea splits in half, and when the manna falls from heaven, it will be because God heard their prayers. The Exodus did not happen just because people were in need, it happened because people prayed, and God heard. Does God hear? When you experience, like, the, Egyptian, or like the, the Hebrews did in Egypt, decades of trials and afflictions, and nothing seems to be changing, does God hear? The clear answer of Scripture is yes, He hears. But secondly, God not only hears the prayers of His people, He also remembers His promise to His people. He remembers His promise. It says, God heard their groaning, verse 24, And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This word remember might cause a bit of confusion at first. We had some good conversation about this in my home this past week. Because it makes us ask this question, does God remember, does that mean that God forgets things? 
Does that mean that he had somehow lost track of this promise that he had made and that he goes, oh, oh yeah, my people are in Egypt. I didn't realize that was still going on. No, no, God doesn't forget anything. He is all-knowing. He's omniscient. His knowledge is perfect and comprehensive. God says this about himself in Isaiah 40, 28. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. His understanding is unsearchable. J.I. Packer, in his little book, Concise Theology, describes the omniscience of God in this way. Packer writes, He knows the future no less than the past and the present, and possible events that never happen no less than the actual events that do. Nor does he have to access information about things the way a computer might retrieve a file. All of his knowledge is always immediately and directly before his mind. God never forgets anything because he knows all things at all times. Presently, it is fully in his view. That's why he's God and we're not. He works that way, we don't. That is completely other to have that kind of knowledge. It's amazing to consider the omniscience of God. There's no one like him, and we rightly stand in awe when we consider the depth of his unsearchable understanding. So what does this mean then that God remembered? Well, to remember here with reference to the promise, like this covenant promise with the patriarchs, remembering in this context doesn't mean recalling to mind. It means acting in remembrance. This is an action word. It's not about recollection. It's about action. Douglas Stewart comments this way. He says, this term, zakar, this Hebrew term to remember, is idiomatic for covenant application rather than recollection. In other words, for God to remember his covenant in this sense means that he is choosing at this time to act. He is choosing at this time to do the things that he had formerly promised to do. We see this language of remembrance over and over again throughout the Old Testament. It's too many texts to reference, so you can go look them up later. Use the cross-references in your Bible. They're great. We even see this language in the New Testament. You read Luke chapter 1, and you see this Old Testament saint named Simeon rejoicing to see the Messiah and saying that this is evidence that God has remembered his covenant promise because he's seeing the fulfillment. God had acted in sending his son Jesus, and Simeon sees it. It says, praise the God who remembers his covenant for a thousand generations. So this is an action word that God is choosing now to begin performing everything that he had said he would do. In times of difficulty, in times of waiting, when we wonder if our prayers are going heard or, or being heard, we may also wonder if God is really going to do what he said he would do. But Scripture shows us, and Scripture proclaims to us and celebrates the faithfulness of God. He always does what he says he will do. Psalm 105, verse 7 says, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. That doesn't just mean that God keeps in his mind the things that he says he would do. It says he does it. He does it. 
The sovereign God who ordained their suffering has also ordained their salvation. He has also ordained their deliverance. He has also ordained that they would be blessed and become a great nation and inherit the land. And he's going to do it. He's chosen to love these people and will fulfill his covenant. Although times of waiting and times of weeping may come, God's purpose is never abandoned. It is never forgotten. It is never set aside, no matter how dire our circumstances may seem. God is faithful. He's faithful. And this truth that God is faithful, that God keeps his promises, it calls for faith. It invites worship. And it will sustain you to endure the trials and tribulations that will come. God is faithful. He remembers his promise to his people. There's a third description of God's response. He hears their prayer. He remembers his promise. But third, God sees the suffering of his people. Verse 25 says, God saw the people of Israel. Real people with names, with stories, with families, with hopes, with griefs. He saw them. He saw them. Psalm 11.4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. God sees everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He looks in judgment on the wicked, but he also looks in love upon those who fear him. And for those who are crying out in Egypt, their suffering has not gone unnoticed. The injustice that they experienced was seen by God. The mistreatment that they suffered was seen by God. Their weariness and their pain was seen by God. The slain babies, the beaten fathers, the weeping mothers, seen by God. And this seeing will soon lead to action. If you remember, maybe it was two years ago now, preaching through the book of Genesis, we considered the story of Hagar. Hagar, who was the the handmaiden, the servant of Abraham's wife, Sarah. She fled from the tent of Abraham with her son Ishmael because of Sarah's harsh treatment. And this Egyptian woman, Hagar, ended up in the wilderness facing death. But God met her there and provided for her needs, provided water, a well. And he promised this woman blessing and a legacy through her son Ishmael. And Genesis 16, 13 says that she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. And this well there in this place is named to commemorate this truth. That God is a God who sees. He sees. That he looks in grace and compassion upon the needy. It's tempting, perhaps, for some of you to feel overlooked, to feel ignored, to feel anonymous when you suffer. The scripture tells us that God sees all. He sees you when you suffer. And this seeing is not the cold, indifferent observation of a distant God. It is the gaze of a loving father. Psalm 56, 8 says this, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? 
God sees. He sees everything. He sees those who feel invisible. In fact, he sees you more clearly than you even see yourself. He sees you even when your family may not see. Your friends may not see. The people at church may not be able to see. But God sees. And he looks on you with compassion and love. This is the heart of God. We see it here in the text of Scripture. This is what he is like. This is the God we pray to. This is the God we worship. This is the God we trust. He looks on you with compassion and love. And this truth that God sees, a truth that should put fear in the hearts of the wicked, it should give comfort to the people of God that he sees. So God hears their prayers. He remembers his promise. He sees their suffering. And lastly, God knows. God knows. He knows the suffering of his people. To say that God knew, it means far more, again, than just saying that God was aware of what was going on, that he had all the facts in front of him. It does mean that, but it means far more. In fact, I love how the various English translations try to grasp for the best way to communicate this, that God knew. This Hebrew word, to know, yada, it's it's a big word that, that has a lot of layers to it. The ESV translates it very simply in the in the direct sense, that God knew. Some of you may have the New American Standard in front of you. It says God took notice of them. The NIV has it that God was concerned about them. The New English translation says God understood. And they're all really getting at, I think, the same idea. This word for knowing communicates intimacy, experiential knowledge, an understanding that comes from a deep personal connection. That's why Genesis says in the King James, Adam knew his wife. She conceived and bore a son. That's why in the New Testament it teaches us that salvation is found in knowing Christ relationally. And here, when the people of Israel cried out for help, it says God knew. He understood. He has a personal commitment and connection to them. Psalm 1-6 says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Psalm 31-7 says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul. Psalm 37-18 says, the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. Perhaps many of us in this room who have been around a lot of good theology, we believe that God hears and that God sees and that God sovereignly keeps his promises. But perhaps at times you've wondered, does God care? Does he care about me? Is there any sort of personal connection, personal commitment, or am I just a small, faceless cog in this big, sovereign wheel? The scripture tells us that God understands And has compassion. He knows. He is a relational God. Psalm 139 brings this out. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge 
is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Ultimately, the New Testament describes salvation in these very terms. In knowing God and being known by God, that's what it means to experience the saving grace of God in Christ. This is salvation. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and they know me. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Knowledge means relationship. It means personal connection and commitment. And it implies the care and the compassion of God that he understands. We have to always acknowledge that God's ultimate purpose, of course, in rescuing his people, his ultimate purpose is the glory of his name. Psalm 106 says this. He saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. We say amen and amen. That's where it starts and ends. From him, through him, to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. But hear me, this God-centeredness of God, which is true and beautiful and necessary, this God-centeredness of God does not mean that he lacks compassion. He cares for his people. He knows them. And in his startling grace, this God is about to make himself known to them. He's about to speak to Moses. He's about to tell them his name. The God who knows them desires that they know him. That's what the burning bush will be all about. But that's not this week, so we'll have to wait for that. But any questions about God's heart that Israel may have had, consider they've been 400 years in Egypt, and at least 80 of those years have been harsh and oppressive and difficult. Any questions they may have had about God's heart following that experience, the answer is given here. Does God hear? Does God remember his promise? Does he see? Does he care? The answer is a resounding yes. And it's written down forever so that all may see, so that all may know the character of God. This is what God is like. This is his heart. And Christian, God calls you today to look squarely into the light, the light that radiates from this text. This is who God is. This is his heart. And this truth calls for a response of faith. Let me exhort you today, doubt not his heart. Believe. Believe. You may ask, why does the text belabor this point of God's heart in response to human anguish? Why are, is there all these repetitive statements about hearing, remembering, seeing, and knowing? Well, here's why Scripture lays this out. Because this is the precise point at which our faith will be tested. This is the exact truth that you and I will be tempted to not believe when things become painful and difficult and prolonged. We may wonder why God doesn't act. We may wonder why it takes him so long to meet our needs. Friends, this is not always ours to know. We don't get the answers to those questions. But let me say this. We must not deny the things that God has revealed because we don't understand the things that he hasn't revealed. It's black and white on the pages of Scripture that God is sovereign and God is good. That he's in control 
and he loves you. We must embrace these truths by faith, both the truth of his power and the revelation of his heart, his sovereignty and his goodness, his wisdom and his love. And this faith that believes this truth, this is not an irrational faith that holds two contradictions together. This is a reasonable faith, a faith that looks upon God's revelation of himself and sees the way God has proven his character throughout history and simply accepts this truth at face value. I really can't put it any better than Doug Stewart who comments, the theological issue here is not whether or how people suffer. The issue is does suffering go unnoticed? If it does not, and indeed the one doing the noticing is the true omnipotent and loving covenant God, his people can properly surmise that their suffering may well be part of a plan, that it is a suffering with a distinct beginning and end, a hardship understood by and watched over by a sovereign who will not let it continue without good purpose and result. God hears, remembers, sees, and knows. He has not abandoned you. He has not turned his back on us. He is not a cold and distant sovereign who looks the other way. And this is simply a truth that we must believe because to doubt God's heart at this point is to reject the clear teaching of Scripture. And no amount of our emotion or experience can justify denying the truth of God's Word. So doubt not his heart. Believe. Secondly, I want to exhort you today to draw near to him. If this is who God is, if this is what God is like, then draw near to him. Depend on him. Seek him. Trust him. We have many saints in the room older than myself, and some younger as well, who've learned this lesson, that God often uses suffering and difficulty to do what? To drive us to our knees and to draw us to himself. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. He says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That was to make us rely. That experience of what felt like death, burdened beyond your own strength, despairing even of life, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The deepest sorrows that you've tasted, the most painful adversity, the bitterest losses, these are to make us rely, not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. And this is a lesson not only for some, but a truth that all of God's children must learn. There's no exceptions. In fact, in Acts chapter 14, verse 21, Paul's preaching the gospel and people are coming to faith. In Acts 14, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, get this, 
and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is what Paul's teaching new believers, that all of us are going to face tribulations, difficulty, suffering, adversity. And this is a lesson Paul had learned firsthand. I mean, this is right after he gets stoned and left for dead, that he's teaching people, hey, this is what it looks like, and this is what it may include. So a lesson Paul had learned firsthand, and one that he understood to be essential for all followers of Jesus. So he's teaching this to the new disciples. So if suffering is a reality, and if God desires to teach us to depend on him, and if this is God's heart, that he loves us and cares for us and hears us, then what must we do? Draw near. Draw near to depend on God. This is why we pray. Prayer is the exercise of our trust. It is in prayer that we seek his face. It is in prayer that we cast our cares upon him, knowing that he cares for us. It is in prayer that we pour out our hearts before him. Our prayer is the exhale of faith in the face of weakness and difficulty. And it is prayer that shows we believe God is sovereign and that he is good, that he can do something about this and that he hears us and that he is merciful. If this is who God is, then we must draw near and depend on him. And then finally, a final exhortation I'll leave you with. We need to declare this truth to those who don't know. Declare God to those who don't know. Psalm 105 welds worship and witness together in this way. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Remember what we said at the beginning, that this world is full of caricatures, distortions of what God is like, cartoon images of a God who is either powerful and not good, or a God who is good but not very powerful, and people need to hear the truth. They need to know what God is really like, the way that he has revealed himself to be in his word. Scripture shows us a God who is incomparable, sovereign and holy and seeking his own glory, but also compassionate and faithful and full of steadfast love, a God who works in his own time, in his own way, but yet hears our prayers, a God who ordains all things, even suffering, but is also near to the brokenhearted, a God who sees our deepest need, the need for salvation. And loves us enough to take on flesh and enter into human history, to suffer in our place and purchase for us eternal life. And this is a message the world needs to hear. Isaiah 52 7, which will be later quoted by Paul in Romans, says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The world needs messengers who will proclaim this truth. 1 Peter 2.9 says this is part of God's purpose in saving us. It says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous 
The world needs to hear about this God. And who is going to tell them? Who? Who will tell people what God is really like? That he knows, that he loves, that he keeps his promises. Who will tell them that he sent his own son to die and rise again? Who will tell them that their deepest need is to know God and be known by him? And that need has been provided for through Christ. And that if they will repent of their sin and trust in the gospel, that they will have joy and rest in eternity with Christ. Who's going to tell them? You will. You will. At least you're supposed to. This is God's plan. This is God's design. That we would proclaim his excellencies to a world that does not know what God is really like. And they do not understand what God has done. And they have no clue about what implications it has for them. We have the great privilege and responsibility of telling the world about the holy God who has a heart for sinners. That's a privilege and a responsibility. So brothers and sisters, do not doubt God's heart. Believe today. Believe in what his word says. Draw near to him in faith and pour out your heart before him. And let's declare his glory and his goodness to those who do not know. This is who our God is. He has shown us his heart. He has made himself known so that we might know him and so that we might make him known among the nations. Father in heaven, we thank you for this amazing truth. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring about us. Thank you for making promises, promises that lead to our very salvation, promises that you keep. You swear by your own name, and your purposes will not fail. Lord, it's a mystery to us that you would care for someone as small and seemingly insignificant as us. It's a mystery to us that you would delight to hear our prayers and even use our prayers to further your sovereign purpose in this world. So, Lord, we worship you and stand in awe of all that you are today. We ask that you would help us to see more of you, expand our vision, broaden and deepen our faith to grasp more fully the depth and breadth and height and to know your love, which is found in Christ Jesus. God, I pray for those who are hurting today that you would comfort them. You would send your spirit, the comforter, You'd minister to them in ways that I can't, that no one here can. Pray that you would meet them in their need with your grace, your all-sufficient, perfect grace. Lord, I pray for some here today who may not know you. Perhaps they've had a false view of who you are. They've not understood the depth of your sovereignty and power, but also the depth of your love and the nature of your heart towards sinners. Lord, they may be suffering or struggling today, but I pray that you would bring them face to face with a deeper need than to escape discomfort in this life. I pray that they would understand their need to know you and to be known by you so that in eternity they might stand with you as recipients of your grace instead of standing before you condemned for their sin. Lord, I pray that you would rescue sinners from hell today. You would draw them to yourself You would illuminate the beauty and glory of the gospel in their heart. Bring them to repentance and faith. 
that they might worship you, that they might make you known in all the earth. And Lord, for those of us who know you, God, give us an urgency, a holy burden to proclaim to the world the truth of who you really are, what you've done in history, especially in the sending of your son, Jesus. God, give us boldness and courage. Give us a holy zeal to make sure that people know who you are, that they see you rightly, that we would seek to tear down the false images that abound in our culture, the caricatures of you that distort your attributes and minimize your glory. God, proclaim your truth through us. Expand the knowledge of your glory through the earth through us. Forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us for our disobedience. Lord, use us. Work in us. And be glorified in it all. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.